is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Perhaps it was just a matter of time, but President Biden has now tested positive for COVID. The president is isolating at the White House, saying he's doing great. The White House says the president has very mild symptoms, including a stuffy nose, fatigue, and cough. Mr. Biden is also taking Paxlovid. But at the president's age of 79, does he need to worry about the after effects? We go in depth to look into the president's prognosis. Disney making a move at its theme parks toward gender neutral language. This has some fans and others upset, but is it much ado about nothing? And speaking of theme parks, Knott's Berry Farm is now going to require adult chaperones for everyone under 18 at the park, at least on Fridays and Saturdays. But can that really stop unruly teens from getting into trouble? Russia may go on the offensive again in Ukraine, but new U.S. military aides could help stop any new advances. New report shows more people are leaving L.A. to go to cheaper spots, but a local professor says that's nothing new. And people enjoy watching the monarch butterflies, the orange and black wings, um, but they are now on the endangered list, so we'll talk about them. We start with President Biden testing positive for COVID, having COVID. With us is Bloomberg White House reporter Josh uh, Wingrove. Uh, Josh, thanks for being with us. So uh, what do we know about uh, what the president's current condition is, and does anybody know how he managed to get it? Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, what we know right now is that he has very mild symptoms. They're saying, you know, runny nose, bit of a cough, that sort of thing, and that he's working remotely, like, of course, so many people have done on and off for the last couple of years. The question is, will the symptoms worsen and, you know, how quickly he'll still be testing positive? They've got him on Paxlovid. That's that Pfizer pill that is given to people who test positive. It's Biden himself has called it a bit of a miracle pill, and he'll take that for five days. Sometimes people see a bit of a bounce back after that, and so that'll be a question. Does he test negative and then positive again? But broadly speaking, people without substantial comorbidities, even at his age, who have had four shots like he has, who are on Paxlovid like he is, most health experts are saying that they don't expect him to have a severe case at all. We said this at the outset, but does it feel like a, it was only a matter of time kind of thing? Because it's gotten really close before. I mean, the vice president, the press secretary, uh, it's been around. Yeah, it feels like the walls have been closing in for a while. Uh, you know, they said today flatly that they think inevitably everyone will get it, which I don't recall hearing from them before. But, of course, others have said it. But, yes, it's circulating more broadly. You know, I covered the last administration as well, and there was a lot to do, of course, when President Trump had his uh, case, and that was a quite a different era, needless to say, you know, pre-vaccines, you know, just a totally different you know, environment, no packs of it, none of that. So right now, you know, they, they've kind of been bracing for this. Officials have been saying for quite some time, look, you know, it's certainly possible he'll get it, if not likely, you know. And so here we are with this. Uh, Biden put out a video today sort of, you know, saying that he's doing fine so that he can show up on, on camera to sort of quell doubts as to whether he has a serious case. This, of course, comes after his trip to the Mideast. So they don't, they don't know where he got it where? or who he got it from. They, they say they're not even barking up that tree. It's too much work. They're <laughs> focusing on, 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 on who he's seen. In other words, people he could get right. sick rather than people who got him sick. And so that they'll, that's, that's the tree they're barking up for now. But I, let, let me ask where you this, who Josh? he got it from, who knows? Yeah, let me ask you this, because you mentioned you had covered the previous administration, which, of course, would have been the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you remember, uh, you know, there were photographs uh, early on of Mr. Trump 
appearing to be well, and the early news on his condition was, it turned out in retrospect, somewhat uh, filtered through rose-colored glasses. How do we know we're getting or will be getting accurate information this time? Well, I think it's an open question. Uh, You know, the the video helps. I mean, President Trump, you recall, walked himself to the helicopter to go to Walter Reed. And we've learned since then a lot of things. You know, it's been a couple of years. Things come out in the wash. And, you know, he, he had quite a lot, uh, quite a substantial plunge in his oxygen level. President Biden's oxygen level, according to his doctors right now, is normal. Um, uh, and again, of course, wasn't vaccinated. Trump was younger than Biden is now, but was still in his 70s. Uh, and, and, you know, had uh, the weight would have been a factor as a comorbidity. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of, it's just a it, it bit of apples and oranges, kind of different era. But you're right. Every time we have these cases, no matter the president, Republican or Democrat, there's always pressure from the press to, you know, bring as much of that information forward as possible. So for now, what we have is a, is a written statement from Biden's physician, uh, the, the video statement from Biden himself, and this lengthy briefing this afternoon. And a couple of nuggets from that is they, they, they opted not to give him the second kind of treatment you can get right now, which is a monoclonal antibody from Eli Lilly. They thought about it, didn't think it was worth it. He might get it if things go south. And we asked, hey, what happens if he rebounds? This happened with Dr. Fauci. People go on Paxlovid, it runs out, they test negative, and they, they bounce back. And basically, they're holding the option open. He might go on it again. But uh, I think you're hard-pressed right now to find anyone that thinks President Biden is at substantial risk of serious cases. Uh, the, the, the one factor that, you, that they don't really know about right now, or I guess two, one is reinfection. With this, We don't know that he has BA5, but you know, if he has BA5, which is a variant that's circulating right now, no one really knows you know, how, how long he'll be protected for. Could he get it again in a couple months? We don't know. And the other thing is we don't really know what long COVID is for people that get it, particularly, you know. Well, I'm glad, Josh, I'm glad you mentioned that, because when we continue, that is exactly what we're going to be talking about. At 79 years old, the data shows he's at a higher risk of complications, such as long COVID. Can he really have a complete and full recovery? Dr. Amesh Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He served as an advisor to FEMA and other government health agencies on pandemic response and preparedness. Been with us many times before. Doctor, thanks for uh, returning uh, with us. Um, So that's the question that I'm curious, and I think Mike is as well, about long COVID. Yes, the president at the moment, uh, appears to have very mild uh, symptoms. He's on, as you know, Paxlovid, which is apparently a good drug. He's double boosted. But we also know that there are many people who have had even asymptomatic COVID who have gone on to have long COVID. Isn't that right? There have been some reports of individuals who have inapparent COVID infections that develop long COVID. However, I think there's still a lot more questions than answers with long COVID about who is at risk for getting it, what are the risk factors for getting it, how does being vaccinated, being boosted, getting packs of it, how does that all impact long COVID? So I I think, you know, it's still true, even though we hear so much about long COVID, that the majority of people don't get long COVID. And I think somebody that's, that's tested and very promptly and put on treatment that's vaccinated and boosted it's, it's probably less likely that he gets long COVID, but it's something that they'll have to, to monitor. And I think it underscores the need for a lot more research on this topic. Yeah. What do we know about having all of your boosters and being super up to date on your vaccines when it comes to getting long COVID? Or have we also looked at Paxlovid? I imagine it's an ongoing kind of thing. Do people who get on that relatively quickly, uh, that obviously lessens the duration of your initial disease, but could it help in the long term as well? 
So with vaccinated individuals, we know that long COVID is less common after vaccination than if you're not vaccinated. And the more vaccinated you are, there's some rationale to think that you're less likely to get long COVID, although it could still occur. With Paxlovid, there's not strong data yet on long COVID, but we do know that in some studies, one of the risk factors for long COVID is having a high viral load or a high amount of virus in your body. And Paxlovid does bring down viral load. So there's rationale to think that Paxlovid may decrease your chances of getting long COVID. And I think that's an important study to do to see does Paxlovid impact your risk of, of developing long COVID. But again, it's something where we don't have a lot of data. Now, I know the White House is saying that uh, they'll monitor, of course, when he finishes, the, when the president finishes the five-day course of Paxlovid. And then the question came up at the White House, supposes a rebound, because some people who have been on Paxlovid uh, a few days after they stop the treatment, they start testing positive again. And I remember when this happened with Dr. Fauci, he, I believe, took another five-day course. And they're indicating that if that were ha- to happen now, they would evaluate whether to do that with the president. But doesn't that fly in the face of CDC recommendations? There is no recommendations or even studies, uh, are there, that support using Paxlovid more than once for the same case? You're, you're correct that in general, when someone has rebound, whether or not it's related to Paxlovid or not, you don't retreat them because What's the pa- Paxlovid's benefit is prevention of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And individuals who have experienced rebound don't really have that high of a risk. So I, I don't know that there's any good rationale to retreat. I think there's still studies that need to be done about should we be dosing Paxlovid different? Should we be giving it longer? And we still haven't quite nailed down if Paxlovid, if this rebound is actually something due to Paxlovid. It seems to be much more common on Twitter than it does in the medical journals. You don't see much <laughs> strong that. data. And, and most people that have had rebound are celebrities, um, which I think is odd, <laughs> or they're in the news business. We don't like the average person not down your street doesn't get rebounded. So there may be a little bit of a bias in the reporting wait, wait. because of I, who I'm, gets it. I'm in the news business. I, t- I did take Paxlovid. I did not have, just yeah, for the yeah, record, I did you. not have a rebound. One of the good ones. I, yeah, I did not have a rebound. <laughs> All right. Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar, Johns Hopkins University Center. <laughs> Center for Health Security. Thanks. A little bit later, Ukraine is hoping more U.S. military aid can help push back against Russians. And lots of people are moving out of L.A. And we will tell you where they are going. We're going to follow them. Yes. Yeah, we're going to we're not going to let them go. Well, no, we're going to pull if them they back. want to leave. No, we're not. No, nah, we're going to we're going to just you cars back. on the road. Gonna, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> let me rethink this. <laughs> leave. Get out of here. Uh, right now, let's talk about Disney. They've always changed things up. Uh, Disneyland, Disney World, the other parks. Remember Pirates of the Caribbean? The pirates were, were chasing the women around, and then they switched that up, and now she's got like a rolling pin. She's going to smack him. Yeah. And they're going to close down Splash Mountain and change that. Um, now, they traditionally had these fairy godmothers at the Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutiques, and uh, once those reopen, the cast members are going to be called Fairy Godmother Apprentices. The goal, be more inclusive, but uh, not everyone is happy about the changes, and they're on the internet talking about it. Kristen Strand is a vlogger at StreamingTheMagic.com, which live streams from the Disney parks daily. Uh, Kristen, thanks for being here. So first off, um, what is a Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique? Hi, thanks for having me on today. The Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique uh, is where you can take children who are, uh, want a makeover, and they can go, they can get either a uh, princess makeover with hair and makeup, or additionally, they have some packages where a child could also become a knight that provides a, a sword and a shield. So that's in essence what they provide in those experiences. 
So I, I gather the, the rationale is that if you call these these young children fairy godmother, uh, 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 what is it, uh, apprentices, that that's more neutral than suggesting that only young girls could eventually become fairy godmothers? Is that the whole idea behind this? Right. Well, I think it's important to understand, too, that they were formerly known as fairy godmother in training. So at this point, to change them over to fairy godmother's apprentices, I don't think is very far from fairy godmother in training. And it does give an opportunity to be a more inclusive, uh, their fairy godmother's apprentices. It could be inclusive of anyone performing that training duty of, of helping these children have the looks of the princess package or the night package. So it's for the workers, the employees, who they call the like cast, cast members, members yeah. right? Yes, cast members. So if someone doesn't identify in that way, then now it's more neutral. That's their thing? That Yes, more neutral, and you're an apprentice. But if they wanted to be really neutral, I mean, really, shouldn't it be fairy god persons? You're right. But in this case, I think when you look at what they've put out on their website, fairy godmother, I would, um, like apostrophe S, fairy godmothers, apprentices, it kind of alludes to the fairy godmother is in charge and the people there are the apprentices of that person. Making it a neutral (laughs) statement. Why do you think every time that um, Disney especially, some of the fans, they go on the Internet, and I'm sure you've seen all the posts, and that's why we're talking about this today. I mean, people are saying, I hate this. All the magic is gone. And also, like, (laughs) who cares? You know, like, this is not if it doesn't affect you, then don't worry about it and just go and have a good time. Yeah, that is something I know that there are for those people who are upset. You know, there are a lot of people who see it as. They want to take their child there, and they do have this vision of kind of the the Cinderella moment. So I can see where the frustration is. Like, they want to have a Cinderella moment where an actual fairy godmother is giving them that. And so I think that's where you see backlash coming in, is they had this vision of this. And now it's more fairy godmother's apprentices, an inclusive term of a, a more neutral term when it comes to the person performing the service, as in doing the hair, makeup, or the styling of the child. Kristen Strand, vlogger at uh, streamingthemagic.com. So if you can't go to Disneyland today, you can watch the live stream from the Disney parks. Uh, I want to hear you say again, bibbidi-bobbidi-boutiques. One more time, bibbidi-bobbidi-boutiques. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Knott's Berry Farm looking to keep its uh, image intact. It's a family-friendly place now requiring all the kids and teens under 18 to be accompanied by an adult, somebody 21 or older, at all times, Fridays and Saturdays. Now, the reason is because a series of brawls broke out, which led to the shutdown of the park last weekend. But will this new policy really work? An adult nearby might work to keep a 10-year-old in line, but what about teenagers? Dr. Bethany Cook is a psychologist and expert on parental guidance and child behavior and mental health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of remember, A, when I was 21, and B, my friends who were 21, and I'm not so sure that we would have made really great chaperones. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, then you are probably the exact people that those younger teens want to get to take them to the <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, they but, found but, out who they I need mean, to call. Yeah, but seriously, I mean, isn't... That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, but I mean, a 21-year-old being a chaperone for, what, a 17-year-old, I'm not so sure that that really works. Well, I hear... I, I get the overall um, gist of what the park is trying to do. I think that I love that they're taking action. And here's the thing about teenagers... And humans in general, but teens more specifically, their frontal lobes of their brain are not fully developed. They are more apt to act impulsively and to try risky behavior. That combined with what's called groupthink can create a really uh, ripe environment for any kind of behavior to take off. Now, groupthink happens when individuals, when you have large groups of individuals who stop thinking for themselves and they start thinking as you know, one mass group. And a, a great way for me to explain this is, you know, maybe somebody doesn't love uh, going to games like basketball games or something, but their team starts to win. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they make the winning shot. Everybody stands up. They're suddenly standing up and cheering and they have no reason to ever really do that. They got caught in that group think. So when you have groups of teens, that can easily happen. Also, we have mass shootings going on right now, so everybody's amped. And if the park is more concerned about parents and maybe younger kids coming, I don't know if that revenue stream is higher and keeping, you know, teens out, they're, they're going to maintain and keep the people they're going to bring the cash in. Now, to your point about the 21-year-old, I, I think I read that they can only take three teens at once. So if there's one, quote, semi-adult with three teens, unless this 21-year-old is a part of kind of the younger pack, I don't think they're going to be taking kids to go there to fight. Often teens will say, hey, we're going to meet up at this location and we're going to have a brawl or we're going to have a fight. If this rule is in place at the park, that's going to make it harder for those teens. Why do you think it turned into like a let's go fight at Knott's thing? Is Knott's like the stand-in for the mall now because uh, (laughs) indoor malls aren't around and you used to do that? You go to the mall and fight somebody? Absolutely. Any place can be the location, right? And if you can go to a location that's outside, you don't have to wear masks, people can have fun. There's also that adrenaline rush that you can get. Maybe somebody said, we're going to have a fight. Well, let's go do the demon drop. I don't know what you know <laughs> ride there is. But that's going to get your adrenaline going, and that's going to hype you up. But to go back to what you were saying about, uh, you know, in teenagers, the frontal lobe, right, is, isn't fully developed. Yeah. So is it at, at 21? I'm Again, I'm thinking back when I no, turned 21. No, 21's not any better. No, I was going to say. Semi-adult. Yeah, because I don't remember at 21 thinking, ah, my frontal lobe is now really kicked in. <laughs> I am adult. Yeah. <laughs> Making great decisions always. <laughs> I know. I think it's an arbitrary number. You know, like, why do we only drink at 18 versus 16 in your countries? Like, I don't know where 21 came from. I think it's just kind of maybe 25 would have been better because that's what, like to rent a car, you have to be 25. I don't know where people come up with these numbers, but 25 is the average for a fully developed frontal lobe. You know, and parents, if parents come with their kids, teens don't want to be embarrassed, so they're probably not going to act out if their parents do come. The kids whose parents don't care aren't going to take their kids anyways. So I think that there will be, some decrease in fighting and that type of behavior. They're just, the teens are going to find some place else to go if that's why they were fighting. And if they weren't, then you can't get really large groups together if it's three per one adult. And I think I read that if the kid gets, like if a teenager gets stopped by security and the security said, where's your person, they're going to get kicked out of the park. So there are, I think it's a great structure 
whether it can be enforced by the theme park, I have no clue. Whether their security is going to, you know, feel confident kicking kids out, I don't know how all of the logistics will work. On paper, I think it's a good plan. I think it would work to decrease some of the fighting that could spontaneously happen and will definitely deter the teens that have chosen that place as a location to, you know, let's go back to West Side Story and have a, a Jess and the Sharks kind of, you know, dance out. All right, Dr. Bethany Cook, psychologist, uh, expert on parental guidance, child behavior, mental health. Doctor, thanks. So shouldn't they really say that you can ha- you have to be sort of accompanied by somebody with a fully developed frontal lobe? That's right. We'll give you a little test, yeah. a little scenario. Choose your own adventure. If it ends in a fight. <laughs> well, you know. What was the ride that she came up with? No, the demon drop. The demon drop, right? That doesn't really exist, does it? Uh, probably somewhere. It does? Yeah, the demon so. drop. Okay. Googling. I thought that was the elevator in our building. <laughs> there is one in Pennsylvania. Oh, there is. Oh, yeah. the demon drop. Okay. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The White House says Russia is far from done with offensive attacks in Ukraine. It says Russian forces may try to capture new territory in the south of Ukraine. Now, this all comes as more U.S. military aid is being delivered to Ukrainian troops. Also comes as a Russian official made some threats about the disappearance of Ukraine's sovereignty as the war drags on. What can we expect as we go forward? Peter Mansours, a retired U.S. Army colonel, former executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq, current professor of military history at The Ohio State University. Thanks for being with us. So can we just start with your sort of overview of of where you think things stand right now? Well, right now, I think the war is in uh, pretty much a stalemate. Uh, Russia is making incremental advances in the east in the Donbass region, but really no significant gains. And uh, Ukraine is getting significant support from the west, which is allowing it to launch some counteroffensives in the south near Crimea. So this war has a long way to go, and um, it's not certain what's going to end up. Well, right now, of course, you know, uh, people in Europe and the UK, they've been busy trying to deal with unprecedented heat. But that's eventually going to stop, and they are going to have to deal with normal cold winter weather. And does that work in the end to uh, the advantage of Vladimir Putin? In the short term, yes. I mean, he, he can turn off the gas spigot. Uh, cause the prices to rise, fill its coffers with uh, rubles, and uh, make it very painful for Europe to support Ukraine. But in the long term, this is going to work against Russia because uh, Europe is busily finding other sources of energy. And uh, I think in a matter of years, you're going to see them wean themselves off of Russia, oil, Russian oil and gas. The support that's coming from us, it's coming from Europe. Has there been any wavering in that, or are they still getting what they're asking for? Uh, no wavering yet, uh, and they're not getting everything they're asking for. Um, they want, for instance, about 60 HIMARS systems. These are the long-range rocket systems that we're providing to them to target uh, Russian artillery and ammo depots. They have 16 of them. Uh, But still, that's a significant number, and they've been having a significant impact on the battlefield. And Europe continues to supply uh, Ukraine as well with arms and ammunition. Um, But Vladimir Putin is counting on that will weakening as uh, the pain of uh, economic sanctions hits not just Russia, but Europe as well. I remember we had uh, some expert on, I don't know, a few months ago who was making the point that Historically, Russians are just 
you're more used to and therefore better equipped to deal with deprivations than people are in the West. And, and that, uh, this particular person felt, would work toward the Russians' advantage. Do you agree? Um, I do agree. Uh, it's a good point. The Russians uh, historically have dealt with deprivation because they've experienced a lot of it. On the other hand, um, they don't deal well with massive casualties. Uh, Russian mothers uh, don't like their sons coming home in urns and body bags. Uh, actually, they cremate the remains, so they come home in urns. And this is going to work against uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, stability, the stability of his regime as time goes on. The re recent estimate by the head of the CIA is that Russia has lost 15,000 soldiers in this war. More to follow. Are we seeing any more of these comments on, on Russian state TV that come through that are, you know, reflecting that, that are against what's happening? Because we, we saw a few uh, here and there. Yeah, uh, Vladimir Putin pretty much has a lock on the media in um, in Russia, so we don't see much there. Where, where you do see it sometimes is in the, uh, in the blogs and, and some of the uh, more private channels. Um, but, um, you know, Vladimir Putin cannot keep this this war a secret from his people forever. And uh, sooner or later, the reality is going to hit home to the Russian people. Uh, you know, what was it uh, earlier this week when the president of Ukraine uh, had to get rid of some people in his inner circle because uh, I guess the allegation was that they were sympathetic to the Russian side. Is that much of an issue, do you think? Are, are there many people who are in the Ukrainian government, perhaps, whose sympathies actually don't lie with Ukraine? I really doubt it. Um, you, you know, if there wasn't a Ukrainian nationalism before the invasion, there certainly is now. Uh, all the polls show that the Ukrainian people, by and large, I mean, 80 percent, 90 percent or more support uh, re rejecting uh, Russian demands and that they continue the war to uh, maintain their sovereignty and regain their, their territory. So I really think that these are outliers, and uh, Vladimir Zelensky is just uh, uh, cleaning house. So here comes the how does this end question, because there doesn't seem to be appetite for, you know, just letting Russia have what they took to have that land. Uh, Ukrainians do not want to do that. Um, Russia, of course, wants to take even more than they've got. Uh Wars usually end by signing something at a table, but but what happens with this one? Yeah, there's no negotiating space. There's no shared negotiating space right now. Uh, the Russians want Ukraine to cede territory, and they want a weak and pliable Ukraine that's subservient to Moscow, and Ukraine wants none of the above. Um, so I'm not sure how this ends. I think it's going to be a long war, and it's uh, it may end up as a frozen conflict that continues on into the future, um, in other ways, but um, I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. Peter Monsoor, retired U.S. Army colonel, former executive officer to General Petraeus in Iraq, and uh, currently professor of military history, the Ohio State University. Peter, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Monarch butterflies, you've seen them. They're iconic. Orange and black butterflies, they're out and about. If you haven't seen as many lately, it's because the population is dwindling. So much so that they're now listed as endangered by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. With us now to discuss all this is Scott Black, Executive Director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Scott, thanks for being with us. So what is happening to them? 
Well, monarchs are, are in trouble. Uh, monarchs in the East have declined by about 80% their populations. And in the West, in California in particular, have declined by over 95%. So, so these butterflies, which many of us grew up with, love, um, uh, are indeed in trouble. Is it habitat loss? Is it um, things that we use on, on their food? Is it climate change? Is it all of it? Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. We've got habitat loss. They don't have as many areas to breed um, or to live. Um, they also are affected by pesticides that we use in agriculture and actually in our yards. Um, and climate change is probably having uh, an impact, uh, impact as well. But I, but there are lots of solutions, and we just need to act on them. And I, I really am uh, feel positive that that we can make the changes needed to to save this butterfly and recover its populations. And we'll get to some of those solutions in a second. But I'm curious: is this only impacting monarch butterflies? Uh, and if so, why? Or is this something that's widespread among other butterflies? Unfortunately, it's widespread among other butterflies as well as other pollinators like our native bees as well. Um, these issues really are affecting all wildlife. You know, we as humans tend to build our homes and have our lawns where these animals used to live, or we grow our food in a way that excludes them from those areas. And we use, as I mentioned, uh, lots of these toxic substances, whether it's for the perfect rose or to grow, you know, our, our almonds. And, um, but we can do things differently and still have a wonderful environment for us and, and help them. Remind people how far of a trip they take when they make those movements, because that's not easy to begin with. And then we've, of course, made it more difficult for them. Yeah, monarchs are truly amazing. Monarchs in the East go all the way from Canada down to areas north of Mexico City and then make their way back up progressively all the way back to Canada. Here in California, where they overwinter from north of San Francisco to south of, of Los Angeles, they go all the way up to Idaho, northern Washington, into Montana, Utah, and then these butterflies, smaller, lighter than a penny, make their way all the way back to the California coast. It's, it's truly spectacular. <laughs> it's a good thing they don't have to rely on our airlines to do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, what... those supply chain issues really mess them up. <laughs> what, what are some of the, the solutions that you were talking about? Yeah, the neat thing about monarchs, as well as our other butterflies and our bees, is anybody can take action. It doesn't matter whether you have a small yard manage a farm, manage a park, or a, a big national forest. Monarchs need just a few things. They need their host plant, their main food plant for their caterpillars, sorry, which is milkweed. We need to plant as much native milkweed as possible. But they also need, the adults need to eat too, and they sip nectar from a whole variety of flowers. Native flowers are often best, but some non-natives work for them as well. So go to your nursery, local plant nursery, and ask what is best for monarchs and, and get some of that and plant it. And then take a step back and think about if you can limit or eliminate your use of toxic uh, pesticides, because this is also an issue. If we did those two things, 
monarchs as well as these other butterflies and bees uh, would be doing a lot better. Let's get to gardening. Scott Black, Executive Director, the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. If you've noticed your neighbors packing and moving, it's part of a larger trend here in L.A. A report by uh, Redfin Finds at L.A. ranked second last quarter in large metro areas in the U.S. when it came to people leaving. Reports found they went to places like San Diego and Phoenix. Redfin says the option to work at home is a big reason why people are moving to more affordable areas, but haven't they always been leaving? Yeah. Uh, Gary Painter, professor at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy with us. Gary, thanks for being here. So, uh, long story, we were playing Disney music earlier, and I'm wondering if the one that starts <laughs> with tail as old as time is like an apt thing for this. I think it's fair enough to say a tail is as old as the 1980s, uh, maybe not as old as time, but it is absolutely the case that um, we use a term in the migration world talking about inflows and outflows that domestic kind of outflows from L.A. have often exceeded domestic inflows from other parts of the U.S. into L.A. Um, and that hasn't really changed too much over the last 40 years. What changes from time to time is how many people come from other countries into our region. And is the, the main reason people are leaving, is it, is it I was going to say, simply economic, or is it also quality of life in terms of the environment? Well, I think it's a combination of things. And in fact, right before the pandemic in 2019, I think we had gotten to really a breaking point as it related to um, the rate of housing unaffordability within the L.A. County region. Um, and that was kind of the time when L.A. County population actually started to shrink a little bit. And that had not been the case over the past 40 years, even though it had been the case that people had moved out of L.A. to Phoenix and Colorado and Utah and so forth. Um, and so I think that's the only thing that I would point to that's different in character than previous kind of migration flows from, with, from and within L.A., in the United States and other countries. How big of a driver for maybe accelerating some of it is the ability to work remotely or work from home? And it's easier now because moving is never fun. Uh, but if I know I can keep my job and go someplace else and just put that laptop up when I get there, um, that maybe makes it a little bit easier. That's right. And I think that what we're still going to see is that people at the start of their careers, it's there's still going to be a premium on their career path if they actually go work in person in some of our large cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, etc. Um, but what we have seen and will continue to see is that once careers get established, people are going to look at a variety of different kinds of opportunities. And while it might have been moving to the suburbs in the past, some might actually keep the job in LA um, and then actually move to a new place. So I think it provides a diversity of opportunities for people that are more established in their careers. Um, but I think early on in their career, there still is a premium for you know, recent college grads to come together and to come to a place where there's a lot of them and where innovation can really happen. I mean, how much is this, is this also driven by the fact that L.A. is increasingly a, a place where the middle class is disappearing? Well, I think this brings up the point I brought up with respect to what happened in 2019. I think the issue of housing affordability really, um, and we see it obviously in the terms of the numbers of people experiencing homelessness, as well as many other factors uh, related to people's housing insecurity. But I think that is kind of the, the breaking point as it relates to issues of the middle class and so forth. And so we are as a region, you know, at that point have become a, a region that's in danger of really having 
a shrinking middle class, as opposed to a place where we thought LA was incredibly diverse across multiple racial and ethnic dim dimensions, income dimensions, and so forth. And, and I think that we really are at risk if we don't actually build enough housing that people who are middle class can actually live affordably. Yeah, gauge for me your level of hope that uh, we and this state at large can make a dent in all the housing issues. You know, it depends on what time horizon. Uh, if you said my level of hope in the next five years to make a dent, um, it's probably under 50%. But if we're talking about over the next two decades, I actually have seen action taken at the state level and beginning to percolate at the local level that puts us on the right trajectory. It's going to take more than just simply five years to reverse four decades of bad policy. Um, but I, in the next 20 years, I think we actually can uh, be uh, pointed in the right direction as it relates to housing policy. Yeah, but if you if you consider yourself a middle class and you hang in here for the next 20 years, is it like 20 years of misery? Yeah. Well, I think that's the problem. If you are middle class and you don't, if you're not currently a homeowner, um, then you are facing some choices, especially if you want to become a homeowner. Um, what we know from the data is that the white population has much more wealth accumulated in their older generations, and so there may be hope of a grandparent passing away and their estate providing enough money to become um, a homeowner, but we know that's not the case for our other communities, racial and ethnic minorities. Um, and so to that end, we also face um, a, a real stark reality that the middle class um, of, of our racial and ethnic minorities may be suffering even more than they do currently. Remember when they redid the logo and it was very like Miami Vice and it said Los Angeles had the sun and the colors yeah. and we talked about that. It, it, under it, does it say 20 years of misery? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but maybe that would be more realistic. Um, for people who are still coming in, where are they coming from? Well, I think it's a mix. Um, you are you're seeing kind of more college graduates moving in than high school graduates, for instance. And so they may be coming from any numbers of universities because of the vibrant you know, jobs for, for the information technologies and related industries. Uh, we are still seeing migration from other countries. Um, however, the, the kind of both the combination of what the Trump administration did to legal immigration and also the pandemic, we have seen many fewer people from other countries come to LA. But that is, it's, it's much more of a college educated migration into LA than it had been in the past where there was a nice mix. Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, it, it overall, you know, we're joking about, about 20 years of misery, but it doesn't really look like the near-term future is very rosy. And it, it, I'm wondering if you're like in the Chamber of Commerce, what's your sales point? Well, I think the weather that we are experiencing relative to the rest of the country right now is a continued sales point. Oh, so um, we're back to the weather, something... huh? It's always the weather. <laughs> it's always the weather. That's yeah. not something that the Chamber of Commerce has to work too hard uh, right. to sell. Yeah. But I think what what they can sell is that we, you know, we have a vision for having a safe and, and healthy community, and this is how we're going to get there. And that means that we're actually going to allow housing to be built, communities to form within our borders so that people's quality of life can increase. Um, there still is a demand to move to, to our region for jobs. Um, and if, you know, the smart communities will figure out how to um, house the people that are working in those jobs. And, and I think that's the, the sales part is that we're going to make it easy um, for you to move, not make it hard. And that's essentially been the posture of 
many of our state and local officials as it related to housing, you know, from the late 80s to easily, you know, the period right before, you know, at least mid 2010s, um, if we're being optimistic. And so if that's your posture, like, well, you can come, but I don't really want you to come. I don't want more people here. Um, then you're, you're going to, I guess, essentially put yourself in a, a fraught position. And, and that is, is where we found ourselves in the 2010s and certainly find ourselves today. Gary Painter, professor at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy. All right. I can see all the different mottos from the Chamber of Welcome Commerce. Welcome to California. Now go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. You're welcome here. Uh, This is In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.